You're listening to episode 189 of the Pastor Writer Podcast, conversations on reading, writing, and the Christian life. I'm your host, Chase Replogle. Well, I'm really excited to bring you today's episode. I had a chance to visit with pastor and author Jim Simbola. You're probably familiar with the Brooklyn Tabernacle, and he's done some remarkable work over his years of ministry there in New York City. It's been a while since he's written a book, and we talk about that in today's conversation, why his new book, Fan the Flame, is coming out in September, and why for him, he really felt the Lord leading him to this topic, to this particular time. It's a pretty wide-ranging conversation that I think will be really helpful for anyone in ministry, anyone who's sensing a calling as we get into in the conversation, but for all of us, a way forward in the midst of discouragement when we feel what once inspired us and motivated us, perhaps growing weak or cold. He helps us fan that flame once again. Really helpful conversation. Hope you enjoy it. I'm joined on the podcast today by Jim Simbola. He's been a pastor for more than 50 years of the Brooklyn Tabernacle. Pastor Simbola has a strong burden for the local church and has been blessed with the opportunity to encourage thousands of pastors all over the globe. He's the author of the best-selling book, Fresh Wind, Fresh Fire, as well as several others. And he has a new book coming out here in just a few weeks that he joins me today to talk about. The book is entitled, Fan the Flame, Let Jesus Renew Your Calling and Revive Your Church. Jim lives in New York City with his wife, Carol, who directs the Grammy Award-winning Brooklyn Tabernacle Choir. Pastor Symbol, it really is just an honor. It's a privilege to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, Chase, for having me. It's a joy to talk to you. Well, I've uh, had a few other pastors on recently on the podcast, and uh, I asked one of them just a couple of weeks ago the same question I'm going to ask you at the beginning, because I think it's one all of us are past- as pastors are asking right now. And that's sort of how are pastors doing from, from your vantage point, from your experience, the pastors you work with? What are, you, what are you sensing pastors are finding themselves feeling in the middle of right now? Well, uh, one of the reasons I wrote this book was on March 8th, uh, for a little background, in 2020, I went down to Florida for five days of, uh, of a vacation with my wife. The next day, March 9th, the pastors called me and the board contacted me and said, stay there. Don't get on a plane. Uh, New York City is basically being shut down. COVID-19, the church is shut down, office shut down, schools shut down, um, banks shut down. So I ended up staying there for 16 months. I, I My friend uh, Ken Witten at at Idlewild Baptist Church in in Tampa, gave me his beautiful auditorium and videography team, and I began taping Sunday messages so that every week I could try to encourage the congregation along with Tuesday night prayer talks and daily devotionals, all that. While I was down there, I started meeting with five or so pastors every week who would come to our home there that we have, which we rarely use, I rent an apartment close to the church here in downtown Brooklyn. Uh, but here I was in Florida and five Assembly of God, five Baptists the next week with their wives, five Church of God, non-denominational, uh, Lutheran, Presbyterian, whatever. And did that for month after month after month. And I got a picture of the ministry that I never had before because I'm so busy doing what I'm doing here in downtown Brooklyn that uh, uh, I go to speak at pastors' conferences, pastors visit here, but this was different. And I would say, tell me your story and open up and we'll pray together. Any questions from me, we'll read the word together. 
and chase the discouragement level and also bewilderment and hurt was palpable in these pastors, generally speaking. There were exceptions. In other words, no matter what position they took on anything, they were going to be attacked on social media. A mask, no mask, doesn't matter. They're coming at you. I'll never come back to your church, you devil. What are, what are you trying to make me wear a mask for us? Whatever. And uh, then went to some churches and saw the discouragement there. And pastor after pastor, leader after leader, just opened and said, what do you do? And now, since it's kind of um, gone away a little bit, COVID-19, all these people that went away and didn't come, they're not coming back in large numbers. So right now, how pastors are doing, two months ago, the Pew Research poll said 42% of all pastors in America say they would leave the ministry mañana, tomorrow, if they could just get a job with benefits to cover their family. Now, that's a huge number. That's who admit it. Think of all the pastors who are pounding the pulpit and the Bible. Praise God, he's on his throne. and and But secretly, they're defeated. Uh, lowest percentage now in the history of our country go to church on Sunday. The average number has gone from 90-something uh, average attendance, real attendance, down to 68 or something like that in churches. So although there are exceptions, there's more empty pulpits, more discouragement, less people getting baptized or converting to Christ. So pastors are leaving in droves, and the ones who are sticking it out, they need a word of encouragement. And that's what led me to seek the Lord while I was in Florida and say, God, what can I do? Can I do something? I've made every mistake known to man the year I've been, the years I've been in the ministry. I've learned a lot of things. I've seen God do a lot of things. How can I encourage pastors and serious Christians to maybe do the work of the Lord in a more biblical, Christ-centered way, rather than every new 18, every formula that comes out every 18 months, and they all lead to the same dead end? So that's the genesis of the book, which was kind of based on the question you asked, how are pastors doing? Well, I did notice uh, I got an advanced copy of the book and got a chance to read the whole thing and really enjoyed it. And I've got several questions, as you've sort of already alluded to. It's very Christ-centered, very centered on Scripture. Um, but I also read in the PR material that the publisher sent that this is your first book in 10 years now. Uh, what was it that, that – was there a moment that really stirred where you said, look, I think what God's asking me to do is to, to put this together in a book, to present this material in a book format to pastors? Yeah, I wrote um, – you know, I wrote Fresh Wind, Fresh Fire – one book of the year, I think that was 97. Then I wrote a bunch of other books for Zondervan, my publisher. And then just so busy here, traveling, doing a lot of things. Uh, I just didn't feel inspiration for a book. But this one, I spent dozens and dozens of hours in Florida alone, in my chair there, my prayer chair, with a Bible open and my heart open. And I, the Lord... See, because I was watching all of this, especially some of the things I saw going to church, which I'm um, not naming any church, but some of it was so kind of Mickey Mouse. It looked more like a late night talk show than a, a Christian church. And um, uh, I said, rather than just seeing this uh, and, and lamenting it, I felt the Holy Spirit say to me, so what are you doing about it? I've helped you. I've taught you things. You've made so many mistakes. And that that was what really spurred me contacting Zondervan and saying, 
I feel a book. I don't want to write just to write. Uh, and I'm not a great classical writer, but this one is born out of uh, blood, sweat and tears, as you want to say, in my soul. This was a cry out to pastors. Maybe there's a better way to do the ministry than the way we're doing it, which is causing burnout and not such uh, great amounts of fruit. Looking back on your time in ministry, are there certain seasons that stand out where you personally dealt with discouragement or that sense of burnout that you are recognizing in pastors today? Well, not burnout so much, uh, oddly, even though I'm in downtown Brooklyn and this place is nuts. Uh, (laughs) Since I've come back, it's nuttier than it used to be, which is something. Um, But discouragement is the big D. All pastors face that. Every pastor, whether he admits it or not, big discouragement. I mean, when I started, my sermons were so bad because I'm untrained and go to seminary Bible school. Um, My sermons were so bad, people were converting to other religions while I was (laughs) preaching. I mean, when you see little red dots on their forehead at the end of the meeting, then that's not a good sign. So I was discouraged as can be. The first offering I took was $85, tithes and offerings, if you want to use that term loosely, tithes and offerings. So I had to get a second job. My wife had to. And we were learning on the fly and seeking the Lord. But discouragements, oh, my goodness, it's the big D. There's cancer, big C for uh, uh, human life. And then there's big D for leaders. Look, if Elijah could get discouraged, who called down fire from heaven, if Elijah could go up under a tree and say, oh, no, Jezebel wants to kill me. I can't take it anymore. And got so discouraged that he didn't want to live anymore. Then we all know how powerful discouragement can be to anyone in leadership or just the average Christian. Uh, Satan uses discouragement to wreak havoc in God's plans for our lives. Yeah, it does feel like the last few years have been where there might've been seasons in life where you faced a discouragement. It feels like it's sort of been layers of discouragement piled on top of each other for so many pastors. It's a pandemic. It's not COVID-19. COVID-19, if it's at its worst, can take your life. So you die. Everyone's going to die anyway. But, but, but discouragement can, can wreck, wreck havoc, havoc with your, your, your faith, your walk of faith. The just shall live by faith. How do you live by faith? How do you walk by faith? And not by sight when you're discouraged and don't want to face life anymore because you, but you lost the fact that God's alive, his promises are not real. And pastors who face that, that is a terrible, terrible thing. My heart goes out to pastors. It's very hard to pastor now, as you know. Mm, yeah. Yeah. As a pastor myself and, and to, to think of the sort of, the dangers of my own discouragement, carrying those into the pulpit week after week and what it does to the faith of my congregation as well, too, that if so many pastors are discouraged, then what is the state of the, the churches that they're pastoring? That's a good good point. That link, if, if you're not uh, preaching in faith and by faith, how are we going to produce faith in people? And a lot of times sermons are colored by the emotional state of the, the pastor or the leader, the speaker. And although it's it's correct doctrine, you know, when you're discouraged, the glass is always half empty. Empty. Well, the book itself is structured um, in large part around scripture, around Acts 20, Paul's work. Uh, maybe you could take a moment to describe kind of uh, why that passage, uh, when in the process did that become central for how you were helping pastors think through discouragement in the last few years? Um, so while I was praying and asking God how I can help people, he, he seemed to direct my my attention to 
Paul's farewell address to the Ephesian elders found in Acts 20. And Paul is on his way back to Jerusalem, and he knows through the Holy Spirit that he'll never see these people again. He has spent three years in Ephesus. So both in the city and elsewhere where people went out and started churches, he has a deep connection to this area. And now he's saying goodbye. And he takes like what I would call a selfie of his ministry. In that talk, he just reminds them, but in a way that most American pastors would find like, what? What are you talking about? He's never going to see him again. And he takes a selfie and he reminds them of his life and ministry in Ephesus and, and encouraging them to follow his example. So I, I break it down. It came to me like almost phrase by phrase. What did that, you know, why would he say that? And what does it tell us about how he looked at ministry? And how come when everyone is called burning out, he went through all that stuff as a minister. Second Corinthians really delves into it. Uh, uh, shipwreck, beat ups, thrown in the open sea, this, that, trouble in the country, trouble in the city. And he never once mentions burnout. And here, you know, uh, we're living in America, multiple translations, nice church buildings. Nobody's breaking up our meetings. We're not getting thrown in jail and whooped regularly. And we're like, I can't go on. Maybe he had a source of strength that we've lost contact with. And that I found fascinating, too. But I use that backdrop as Paul, the model minister that the Lord has put before us. After his conversion in the book of Acts, uh, Luke does not follow. uh, The Holy Spirit doesn't guide Luke to follow James, John and Peter and what they did. It's this former persecutor of the church, Paul, who becomes the great Saul of Tarsus, who becomes Paul the Apostle. And we, we learn so much from his life. Then he's inspired to write so many letters in the New Testament. So I really try to focus in on maybe if we do, wait, wait, maybe if we do God's work, God's way for God's glory using God's resources, we're going to see more fruit and won't be burnt out. That's the gist of the book. Yeah, it comes through so clear. And the focus on scripture is, is well, I think part of what it does is right now when everything can sort of seem up in the air, it grounds the conversation back into something we know, something that we do have access to, which is the Holy Spirit and that coming through the word of God, these men that have done it so faithfully before us. Um, one of the things you're describing is, uh, I think a minute ago you were giving some statistics on how many pastors are, are either actually walking away from the ministry or wishing they could find a way to walk away from the ministry. Uh, all of those ministers at some point probably had a profound experience of calling in which they entered the ministry. Look, they didn't do it for the vast majority for profits or gain. They did it because they felt a divine call by God to that work. But somehow that call has has weakened itself in their life. How is it that a pastor holds on to that sense of calling over decades of ministry through these seasons of discouragement? Yeah, well, part of it is um, daily walking with the Lord and letting the Lord remind us of the sacredness of our calling, which has to go on on a daily basis, the way I see spiritual life. The only day we have is today. Uh, tomorrow is not promised. Yesterday, I can't change anything. So the only day I can be encouraged, inspired, and get back on track is today. But a lot of it, losing that sense of calling comes from discouragement or discouragement that comes from following trendy church growth methodology 
that doesn't come from men who are deeply spiritual and women and who have fruit to show like Paul did. Paul said, I don't need letters of recommendation to you or from you. You're my letters of recommendation. God, the Holy Spirit wrote on your hearts through my ministry. These people with these ideas, and of course, they change every two years. And it's more of skinny jeans and a fog machine than it is uh, uh, the meat and potatoes of the word of God and the, and, and the history of the Christian church, starting in the Reformation. Men and women have been mightily used by God, and none of them would know even what we're talking about if you look at some of the church growth uh, directives that, that, that are in abundance around us. When you follow a bunch of those, and I know this from talking to countless pastors, you follow that one for two years. Oh, no, that, that doesn't work. I'm going to do this one here. I'm going to do whatever. I don't want to mention names. This new formula, which are all sold as this is your answer. It's all in your PowerPoint or your lighting. I mean, really. What world are these people living in? Uh, folks are strung out on, on Oxycontin and, and a lot of other stuff going on. And we're talking about uh, aesthetics. So the way to get back, I think Paul, you know, in, in Timothy, uh, he reminds Timothy in one of the letters, Timothy, I'm giving you these instructions, I'm paraphrasing, in keeping with the prophecies that were made over you when you were ordained. So Timothy got ordained, and there must have been some prophetic intimations spoken over him of what God was going to uh, do through and with him. And Paul's reminding of him of that and then says, because through those things, those prophetic intimations, that sacred calling that you know you have, you can fight the good fight. Once you lose that, then pastoring becomes a job. And for a lot of other, a lot of people today, it's a job. They're just running out the clock. They're thinking of just when am I going to retire? And I'm sick and tired of people and problems and the board. And, uh, I can't deal with the elders I have now. I don't want to go to heaven. There's four and 20 up there. I have trouble with the seven I have now and so on and so forth. And once it becomes a job and humdrum, oh, then you just, the discouragement, you just lose the sacredness of that. The God, think of that. The God of the universe who created everything saw me, lowly, fail, frail me, and called me to do something for him. When you lose that that grandeur of your calling, it, uh, you're going to head south quickly. A big part of how you talk about holding on to that in the book is through prayer. And I've noticed you've, you've mentioned that a couple times now to include that during this season when you were meeting with so many pastors, I think you the way you described it a moment ago, you, were, you sort of rattled it off in a list, but you said we were reading scripture together, praying together. Um, you, you weren't, it sounds like, sitting down and just strategizing. But for you, really holding on to this, doing that work of fanning the flame comes back to this practice of prayer. Maybe you could speak a little bit about the centrality of prayer in this work. Right. Well, the truth is God's house shall be called a house of prayer. I don't know who still believes that, but I read it in the book. Uh, my house shall be called a house of prayer. Not preaching, not teaching. That's important. Not worship. Uh, not the slickest building with the best lights, but prayer. Why? Because God loves us so much that at his throne of grace, he has every mercy and grace, mercy for things we've done wrong, grace, which is God's love in action, every kind of blessing we can imagine. He has it available. If we'll just come with the right attitude 
in humility and trusting him and ask. The worst thing that can be written over a pastor's life or a Christian's life is you had not because you asked not. You can go into all this conjecture about the uh, purposes of God and the de- declarations of God and, and all of that. But in practical life, things don't happen that could have happened because we didn't ask. That's what, that's what the Bible is, James is saying there. So, so without prayer, there can't be spiritual revival. Every historical revival was preceded not by great preaching, but by prayer. And when that spirit of prayer was there, Romans 8, we know not how we ought to pray, but the spirit helps us. When that spirit of prayer prevailed and was dominant, the revival continued, which brought fruit, unity, love, evangelism, fruit, conversions, because God was at work. The moment the spirit of prayer waned, the revival waned. So as Charles Finney said, unless there's continual uh, visitations of God and and people praying uh, for God. We need more. We need a fresh, you know, stir up the gift of God uh, that's within you. How do you do that? But by going to the throne of grace and saying, I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired. I've had that 10,000 times in my life. I can't take this. All the need around me in downtown Brooklyn, and, and we're not going to see converts. That's unacceptable. God, you have to come and help us. Did you place us here just to hold a fort or are we supposed to extend the kingdom? And there has to come in humility um, that spirit of seeking and reaching. It's so interesting that God says in the day of trouble, not study about me, call upon me and I will answer you. And And to be very frank, this thought has been in my heart a lot lately. Very too few of us have a living God. We have the God of the Bible and we study doctrine and church history and the God of the future. There's heaven awaiting us and Christ and on the throne and we're book of revelation. But Elijah, when he went before Ahab, he said, listen, uh, I tell you this in the name of the living God whom I serve. He had a living God. In other words, God is alive today. When I preach, He's alive, wants to help me. He can do what, whatever he wants if we're alive to him and trust him. Otherwise, it's just discussing doctrine and then let's go out to a restaurant for dinner. And, and, and we have to get away from that American concept of uh, uh, how are you doing, Bob and Mary, uh, in your walk with the Lord? Oh, I go to First Baptist on Sunday. No, no, no. That's where your body is for an hour. But how are you doing? What, what are you talking about? I go to church. That's the common answer from most Americans who go to church. So we got to get back to not fanaticism, not emotionalism. That's going to get us nowhere. Not to charismatic excesses and people barking like dogs and all that nonsense. We got to get back to that. God is alive. He's alive. He can do things. So let's pray and ask him to lead us and guide us. And we're going to see amazing things. At the center of that you write about in the book is the work of the Spirit. The Spirit, God is doing something by His Spirit, which does strike me that um, it's easy to look back on those pandemic years and imagine that everything was paused, as if sort of what God was doing in the world was paused too or thwarted by shutdowns in some way, which it was certainly not. Um, how is this sensitivity to the work of the Spirit, but also the way the Spirit is a comfort to us in times of encouragement, how does it help us continue steadfast, faithfully in ministry? 
The Holy Spirit, and I talk about this in, in the book, Fan the Flame. The Holy Spirit was sent, according to Jesus, to glorify Christ. When he comes, he will glorify me. So as we are open to the Holy Spirit, you can't force the Holy Spirit. You can't work up the Holy Spirit. The organ can't bring down the Holy Spirit or whatever. You can't shout down the Holy Spirit. But if we're open to the Holy Spirit, he will make Christ real to our soul, not to just our brain cells. He will bring us into that realm of the invisible and the future of who Christ is and how precious he is and how powerful he is. And that brings encouragement and 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 helps us keep on uh, going. Now, what's interesting is if we lift up in the pulpit, if I lift up Jim Cimbala, if I lift up the Brooklyn Tabernacle, if I lift up some denomination or five-point Calvinism or Armenian theology, Armenian theology, if I lift those things up, the Holy Spirit, his influence will subside. He'll go to the side of the stage and say, whatever you're into, I'm not helping. I don't help with those things. I was only sent to glorify Christ. So if your purpose is to glorify your church and show how how important you are and look at the growth and look how clever I am preaching, then you're not going to get much help from the Holy Spirit. But if we preached Christ and him crucified, I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ, him crucified. Holy Spirit's going to come. And as we preach Christ and he helps us, Churches will be transformed. Christian lives will be transformed. You could take that to the bank because that's guaranteed by the word of God. You close the book out with a real sense of optimism. The best is yet to come are the closing words. But that last section is really about the potential of real revival, of spiritual renewal. So many people are discouraged about where the church is today. Do you have a sense of optimism of what lies ahead for us? Yes, I do. But it's it's conditioned by this. When when Jesus wrote seven letters to seven churches in the book of Revelation. Someone might ask in certain circles, Pastor Jim, what do you feel God, the Lord is saying to the church? My response would be, well, it depends. What church are you in? You can't take the letter to Laodicea, which was lukewarm, and send it to Philadelphia, another one of the churches. You can't take the letter to Smyrna, which was facing persecution, and send it to Ephesus, which had lost its first love. So will everybody respond uh, and say, God, you, we're going to seek you because you are a rewarder of those who diligently seek you? No. And that's always happened. That's always been. Uh, I mean, how long had the church of Ephesus, Ephesus existed and the Lord writes, uh, you've lost your first love? I mean, it wasn't 100 years old. It was a matter of maybe decades. So, but wherever there's people who are hungry for more of the Lord and say, God, more is possible. The best is yet to come. We're going to get back to the gospel message and not pastor as life coach and silly uh, um, uh, pseudo-biblical teachings. We're going to get back to the meat of the word. We're going to proclaim Christ. We're going to pray. We're going to love each other. We're going to open our doors to everyone of every race. Now there's a revolutionary idea. Open the doors of our church and of our heart to everyone Christ died for, no matter what color they are. That is a rarity right now. And anyone who knows anything about Christianity knows that's true. People have target groups. It almost sounds sacrilegious to say it. They have target groups. 
certain people Christ died for, they don't want in their church. It doesn't meet their target group. I mean, I don't know what to say. I, Peter, James, John, if they came back, they probably would faint and say, what are you doing? Just love people in the name of the Lord and then go to your reward. This is what the work is. And the best is yet to come for anyone who wants to just follow God's uh, formula that he gives us in his word. Remember, not everyone's saved, but everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord is saved. Everyone who puts their faith in Christ is saved. So we don't get discouraged by unbelievers. We just look for more that might get converted. Same way with the condition of the church. Why lament it? Uh, anybody can curse the darkness, better light a candle. And I like what Spurgeon said, when someone's stick is crooked, don't yell at them, your stick is crooked, your stick is crooked. Lay a straight one down next to it, and the contrast will, will inspire them. Wow, God is something better. And that's what I'm trying to point out in the book, Fan the Flame. Yeah, I love that. That's one of my favorite Spurgeon quotes as well, too. That resonates so much with me. Well, a, a couple of questions I want to sort of begin wrapping up. But um, the book, again, Fan the Flame, Let Jesus Renew Your Calling and Revive Your Church. I think people are getting, even in this conversation, such a clear picture of the book. Uh, and certainly, if you're a pastor listening, which I know there are many, many pastors who listen to the podcast, and you are in one of these real seasons of discouragement, I think the book is helpful. But Pastor Simbley, if you could give even just now, you know, as pastors are listening, a word of encouragement to just continue in faithfulness, um, what would that be to those pastors who are listening? Listen, the best is yet to come in this way. And that's, that's not some cute saying. When they ran out of wine at the wedding, the first miracle of Jesus in Cain of Galilee, Mary said, do whatever he says. That's a good word for all of us pastors. Do whatever he tells you. And he told the, the servants, fill the pots up with water. They didn't need water. They needed wine. But God's ways are not our ways. Then the transformation came. The water was changed into wine. And then the master of the banquet, after he, when he drank it, he went, yo, this is so different. Most people give their best wine first, and then when people are feeling a little happy, they bring out the cheaper cut wine, uh, diluted. But you have saved the best for last. And I cling to that for every pastor listening to me today. The best is yet to come. God had promised us to go from glory to more glory, from faith to more faith. There is no scripture found in, in the Bible where it says, I'll lift you up and then you're going to run out and decline and decline. And by the time you're done, you're going to be, you know, about a six inches high. No, that's not true. That is not true. I don't care what any poll shows. The best is yet to come if, remember, the promises of God are conditional if if we'll do the simple things god asks us to do and just stop and say lord i want to see the greatest blessings not for my namesake or my church sake so that the father will be glorified jesus said you'll bear much fruit if you abide in me so that my father may be glorified so let's bear fruit pastors come on let's not quit it's always too soon to quit anybody can quit but it takes a real man and Woman of faith to say, no, I'm not quitting. I'm going to fight till the very end, and I'm going to see what God will do, and he will fulfill his end of the promise. 
Well, one more question. This one's a little personal as well, too. You, um, you've been pastoring at Brooklyn Tabernacle for more than 50 years. I've got a little over 10 years in, uh, in ministry right now. I would love to hear you speak about the joys of ministry over that, those decades. Um, you still, after these years, it's so obvious. God still speaks to you. You still have a heart to reach the lost. You're still living a life of prayer and sensitivity to the Spirit. Uh, what does it look like, the joy you experience over decades of faithfulness in ministry? Well, I'd like to point out, yeah, I have been about 50 years in ministry, but I started when I was uh, four years old. <laughs> I mean it as a question of honor, I assure you. So. I want to just point that out. No, <laughs> seriously. Um, here's the way it is with me. I try to go day at a time. And I've preached at the largest churches around the world, in Korea and elsewhere, traveled a lot of places. God's opened beautiful doors. There's no place I'd rather be than with the congregation last night in our prayer meeting. No place. The sound of them calling on God, the closest thing to heaven for me. And the people, I delight in the people. I love the people with all my heart. And last night I met with a couple who have three children and have no place to live. They're getting tossed out of where they live. So today, before I interviewed by you, I've been working and praying and calling on God. God, how can we help this couple, right? I'm interested to see, see how God's going to help us on that. I'm dealing with a family where one of our assistant ushers, head ushers, uh, was hit by a runaway car, two guys smoking weed in a stolen car. The police uh, violated uh, protocol and chased them. You're not supposed to chase do uh, car chases in New York. And they hit her at 80 miles an hour. Uh, killed her instantly. But her grandson, who she was with, seven, eight years old, and the mother who wasn't uh, with uh, the child, wasn't with uh, the child at that time, we're working with that family to see where do they go from here? What's going to happen? Uh, I just had dinner last Sunday with somebody uh, after the last meeting, a man in the church always comes forward to pray. And he has some kind of deficiency. I guess he's on medication. Very sweet. I learned all about his life and was delighted to hear how, you know, God is working in his life. Then I go to bed at night, you know, <laughs> I'm the happiest person in the world. I don't want to meet the president. I don't want to meet the queen of England. I don't want to be famous. That doesn't bring satisfaction. But to lay in bed at night and know, look at that person I love. They were helped by that sermon or we helped them find a place to live and, and so on and so forth. That's what keeps it real for me and alive. And I find out the more I do that, the better I preach. Because when, you, like my late friend Warren Wiersbe said, if you hang out in too many Bible conferences, you can get weird very quickly because you get removed from real life. So talking, weeping with people, praying with people helps me preach better because I realize where do they live and what are their challenges uh, so I'm not going to do a study on where the Amorites came from because nobody cares in my congregation. They're trying to figure out how to get through another week of life. And that's my delight to be a part of that. 
Yeah, I'm a podcast host, but I think that advice applies. Hanging out too many Christian podcasts, too many books, even too many, too many conferences. At some point, you better be with your people. That resonates so deeply with me. Good word, brother. Good word. Yeah. Well, Pastor Simbola, it is really such an honor and a privilege and a joy. What a great conversation. Encouragement for me as well, too. The book again, Fan the Flame, Let Jesus Renew Your Calling and Revive Your Church. It's out this September. Um, if people want to be able to keep up with the work you're doing, um, uh, if they want to get a copy of the book, any advice on best place to do that or, or yes, follow you? can get it uh, at, at brooklyntabernacle.org or jimsimbola.org. They can get it at Amazon. They can get it at Christian Books, uh, and and they can order it there. And um, I do a daily devotional, um, uh, which they can watch, brooklyntabernacle.org, which I'll be able to share more of where you can get the book. But it's coming out uh, here in September. And um, I pray it'll be a blessing. All the, the royalties go to the church, as has happened from the first book I ever wrote. So I'm pushing this book not to make a lot of money. I'm pushing this book because I love the body of Christ. No denominations exist to me because I read the Bible a lot. And the Bible says there's only one body. So denominations don't exist to God. They're just figments of our imagination. There are no Calvinists, there are no Baptists, there are no Pentecostals, Charismatic. There's just his people, and I love his people. I love the Church of Christ, and I want to encourage it the best I can. Yeah, well, it's definitely an encouraging read. It will be for anybody who picks it up. And what an encouraging conversation. And uh, our prayer is just going to be for you as well, too, that God just keeps fanning that flame for you. Uh, more work to come, and I know you'll be faithful to it. So thank you so much. Thank you, brother. God bless you. Bye bye. As always, you can find show notes for today's episode by going to PastorWriter.com. There, there's a link to Pastor Jim's book. You can find out more information about it, as well as uh, check out some of the work I've been doing, some of the updates around the five masculine instincts. And as always, if you haven't yet left a review, I'd love to hear your thoughts on the podcast. Also, the book, if you had a chance to read it and would be willing to leave a review, that would be really helpful as well, too. As always, thanks for listening. Until next time.